John Glasspool is CEO at Anthos Therapeutics, a company formed up just four years ago and one that's already got a full head of steam with a so far successful clinical program to address cardiovascular and metabolic diseases with monoclonal antibodies. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. On today's show, we're talking with John about the formation and rapid success of an emerging company created uniquely on the back of Big Pharma, but with all the agile attributes of a startup. John brings plenty of Big Pharma experience to his leadership role there, including prestigious positions in market development and commercial operations at such companies as J&J, Novartis, Baxter, and Baxalta. For a time, he lent some of that expertise as a commercial consultant to Roy Vant, and more recently, he's exercised his experience as a board member of Dalcor and Romata and a senior advisor at MIT. John, welcome to the show. Matt, thanks for the invitation. Oh, it's our pleasure. I'm honored to have you. And uh, I want to I wanna start out by getting to know you and, and Anthos a little bit better. Um, so... First of all, tell us uh, the Genesis story, because as I said, your your company structure is unique um, in in terms of its background, kind of being born of or or being born with the support of, I should say, big pharma, and yet maintaining that uh, that that agile approach as a, an emerging biopharma. So, how and why did Anthos evolve out of Novartis, and how did you become its CEO? So that's a great question, Matt, um, and it, and it is a fairly unique. Uh birth of a company. So Novartis was developing uh, abilisumab. Um, it had made a strategic decision that it would it would seek uh, other ways to get it developed and other ways to get it funded. And during that, that process, they met with Blackstone Life Sciences. Uh, and through much, uh, I would say, negotiation, it ended up that the product was acquired by Blackstone to form Anthos. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's how that came about. How, how did I become the CEO? Uh, Blackstone contacted me to be a consultant on the project uh, as a former head of cardiovascular metabolism at Novartis uh, and knowing the asset quite well. Um, that, that went well and they asked me to be the CEO once the deal with Novartis was signed. And that's how oh. that came about. Okay. All right. So he's done into that role. We'll, we'll talk. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about your consultancy there prior to your leadership uh, in, in a minute. But you know, whenever I talk with uh, the leader of an emerging biopharma company who has the experience that you have or similar experiences uh, to yours with big pharma, uh, I, I get curious about that transition into leadership of, of emerging bio, you know, because it strikes me, you know, you've, you've got these leadership roles on your resume with companies, as I mentioned, like J&J and Novartis and Baxter and Baxalta. Um relatively comfortable places to be, right? Successful companies, commercial stage, lots of money, lots of opportunity for advancement and growth. And yet at, at some point um, you, you move uh, by, by your own volition uh, into leadership of, of new and emerging bios. And prior to that even, uh, and we'll talk about this in a minute, self-employment does a, you know, in a, in a consultancy uh, capacity. What what motivated that? Why not? Uh, you know, why not maintain the trajectory that you are on with Big Pharma? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. I just I, I will give you some sort of slight insight here in that my very first company I worked for in the industry was a venture capital funded company. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with hindsight, I started out in a very small company before moving to Johnson Johnson. 
And to your point, you know, I've, I've had a, you know, tremendous career and time in, in big pharma. Um, you know, I've, I've lived and worked in five countries. I've worked for some of the most prestigious big pharma companies. Um, and, you know, I was very well developed, um, you know, in terms of, you know, education and sending me on training courses and all those things. And, you know, what you learn through that process is what you really enjoy. And, and what came through one of my roles when I was the head of corporate development at Baxter, I started being involved in bio. I was a Baxter board member for bio. And I also headed up our venture group. The venture group reported into me and I got a lot more exposure to small emerging biotech companies that we were investing in. Mm-hmm. And through that process, I realized that you know, what they were spending 99% of their time on was what I really enjoy, which is taking science and turning it into a product. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, when the, after the acquisition of Baxalta, and when you've been something through that, that's so exciting where you spun out, I was on the leadership team that spun that out from Baxter on the New York Stock Exchange, ringing the bell, creating a company from scratch. That was, you know, that was a great, a great run. And then when we were acquired by Shire, you, you take a step back and say, you know, do I want to go to another big pharma company um, or is there something I would rather do? And I, I really made a decision at that point that I would, I would like to go to a small emerging biotech. Of course, what you find then is you think you're really well trained. You've got huge experience. You've worked in multiple countries, multiple divisions, multiple drugs. Uh, and then someone says to you, but, uh, but if you ever worked in a small biotech, big pharma and small biotech are very different. And, and you realize that there's different perspectives on the world. I don't believe I could have been a successful small company CEO without the experience I had. By the same token, I had to be able to demonstrate people that I could work in a small biotech environment without yeah. all of the, the resources and money and and staff that you get in a big big pharma. So it's it's really interesting to me, the two worlds have a real symbiosis between each other, but there's some beliefs out there, Matt, that that the skill sets might be slightly different and to be successful in one might not translate to the other. And did you, do you find those beliefs? Is there, is there weight to to that belief? Uh, In particular, I'm curious. um, So, you know, you've got extensive experience in operations, commercialization, um, manufacturing, development, um, when when you move to the, the 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 emerging bio arena, one I'm curious about what you felt perhaps you could have been stronger in in terms of your experience in the industry uh, as CEO at, at Anthos, and two I'm curious about um, how challenging those resource restrictions proved to be. Great questions, Matt. I, I think the first one is what you realize, what I realized, and, and I'll give you a small example, is that even though I was always been very close to operations, clinical development, mm-hmm. commercialization, there are some things that I'd never been exposed to. Insurance for the clinical trials is a really tangible example where I'd set up big clinical trials. I'd set up uh, CVOTs. I'd set up uh, phase two studies. Of course, big pharma companies are self-insured. Um, all of a sudden, I realized you need to do uh, insurance. So there yeah. were some aspects, however close you are to 
to the business that are you know are new to you do i think any of those things were um truly knockout luckily not because you had you know the big picture piece and lots of the nuts and bolts were identical but there's a few of those nuances that that's for sure mm-hmm. on the on the resource side and we might touch on this later but on the, on the resource side the only difference is in an emerging biotech you don't spend money to to disprove a point you spend money that you need to drive your asset um and you don't need to spend money to to say this isn't the way to go or the other way to go you just make the decision to go and that's that's somewhat different yeah and you don't you don't do as much market research um as you probably would do in a large biopharma at different stages of development you know you probably work more closely with key opinion leaders and individual one-on-ones but less formal market research and and as somebody who used to head up global operations at, at Novartis I'm a big believer in market research but it can only tell you what the world says today it can't tell you the future and so when you're trying to shape um when you're trying to shape a new market and new ways of thinking uh not having the money to spend on that research isn't as big a weakness as sometimes people think it may be yeah yeah so what yeah i'm i'm dig into that a little bit why is why is uh market research research that is less uh le- less important perhaps well, because this is, you know, this is my view. Market research tells you how people are thinking today. Oh, okay, yeah. And how they establish today. So the, mo- the the sort of the classic example is when, you know, Sony did market research on the Walkman and people said, well, why would I want a device to carry my music around with, mm-hmm. right? So no one would have ever developed the Walkman on the back of market research. Yeah. You, had, you had to be more forward thinking and say, we'll make the product and people will come and we'll explain the benefits. Yeah. Yeah. Great analogy. Another, uh, another point in your career that's interesting to me is, is your uh, work as a consultant. You reference, and I, I just learned that, that uh, it was a, a consulting gig, if you will, that led to your current position with Anthos. Um, but you also did some consulting work for Roy Vant and some of its, uh, you know, we, we've covered Roy Vant and several of its operating units on this show and at Bioprocess Online. In fact, Vivek Ramaswamy was one of my guests in our early days of uh, the business of biotech. Um, so I'm curious about that, too, because it looks like that Roy Vant uh, experience as a consultant came post big pharma, but pre, you know, complete embrace, if you will, of, of emerging bio. Did that consultancy experience contribute at all to your move into the biotech startup community? Did it fuel it? It was. It was. It was certainly part of it, Mac. I'd made the decision that I wasn't going to go to the big pharma. I was going to stay in that sort of more emerging space. And so the Roy Van experience <clears throat> was a was a great one where I could I could show to people I could operate in a smaller environment with less resources. That it was really about experience rather than you know spending money mm-hmm. um i took a huge amount you know vivek is a a really great individual and i took some things away from my time at Royvant that will stay with me the way that they dissect the failed trials and put as much energy and learning from why did trials fail as of taking the clinical trials that were positive and what did you learn from that um that 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 experience at Royvant will stay with me for the rest of my career. The other thing I learned 
um, during that time was nothing to do with with Royvamp per se, but I realized I'm not a great consultant. I like to come to a conclusion and then execute it, not come to a conclusion, recommend something, uh, and then not find it followed the way I think it should be followed. Um, and so I realized I really, I confirmed to myself I really did enjoy small biotech. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I confirmed to myself, though, that I probably was not going to be ever a very successful consultant. Yeah, well, it's good. To, well, similar to the the point you just made about uh, sort of doing the post mortem of failed clinical trials, it's good to know uh, what 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 went wrong and what you don't want to do <laughs> in your career as well, right? Yeah, what, uh, exactly. Yeah, uh, on that point um, uh, around analysis of failed clinical trials, you know, it, it sounds as though that made quite a, an impression on you. Where where does that not, in your opinion, happen adequately? Does it not happen adequately or consistently in in, in uh, big pharma? Does it not happen, to your knowledge, uh, enough in in emerging bio? I mean, we all know that you know what is it ninety plus percent of clinical trials fail. It's a super high risk game uh, that that we're playing. Um, but the fact that that left such an impression on you kind of makes me think. Well, maybe it maybe maybe it's something that doesn't happen enough. You know, I could be wrong, but in my experience, it's something that doesn't happen enough. Yeah. In that, what we're doing is we're looking at successful trials and data in order to construct the next successful trials. Uh, but when you take a step back and you realize all of the things, and this is, you know, by doing this systematically, um, you realize there's so much to learn about what went wrong in a trial that the fir- my starting point now of any new trial is to look at the trials that failed in that area and why did they fail? Mm -hmm. And then making sure that you've got those lessons learned and built into your clinical trial program, in addition to learning from the positive ones and making sure you've sized the trial, you've got the right recruitment criteria, you've got the right scales, um, you've got the right biomarkers. And I, and I, and it really, it really did change the whole way I think about, drug development um, in terms of starting out with, let's look at what went wrong in this space that we're, we're going into rather than only let's look what went right. Because I think you hopefully always missed it, but I, I, I learned a great deal of insights from that as to, to what, what you may be missing when you only start with a positive. Yeah. 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 It's very sound advice. So I want to get into uh, the company itself and its structure. And again, uh, any conversations I've had with folks about your company and everything that I read about it, uh, you're doing a very good job of conveying the message that uh, the company's built with this agility of a small biotech with the power of a large pharma company behind it. Uh, And and the words, I think that your official language uh, are that that the company's enabled by a hybrid externalized model, um, which... uh, Honestly, that that I'm not sure what that what, what that means. So describe that for us. Explain that for us. What does it mean to run a hybrid externalized model, and to what effect on the company? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question, Matt. And and you're right. It's not intuitive, right? An externalized hybrid model. And so let, let's take my experience in the industry to set the background of why I think this is a very good model for emerging biotech. You know, one experience was, of course, that the quality and detail and processes that one has in a in any large pharma company. They're, they're tough to be improved upon in terms of the rigor of what gets done. Um, 
On the other side of the coin, you have um, small biotechs that, that may be not focusing enough on the whole program where, well, let's focus on the clinical trial design, but then we won't pay as much attention to the manufacturing. Or let's make sure that we've got the, um, the recruitment criteria correct, but we haven't put enough emphasis on the assay. Mm-hmm. The, the process that we've gone through is to think through the strengths of either system and then say, how do we do that? What do you find, and I'll give you an easy example, is in a big pharma biotech, you will go to an external group to do additional work, but you'll have three or four people that duplicate 40% of what you do with your externalized partner. And what you might have in some smaller companies is, well, we know we need to do this, but we don't have any internal experts, and so we'll do it only with an external party, and we'll let them tell us what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Our external model is we uh, essentially outsource all of the the work that we do. Um, that's it's an external it's a totally externalized model. We're not going to build factories. We're not going to we're not going to build these things. These things exist at a level and quality that would be very difficult for a small company to reproduce, and would be very difficult to move at the speed that we think is important in the space we operate in. But we equally don't want to throw anything over the fence. So the hybrid part of that model is we have really experienced people in each of the areas, whether that's regulatory or quality, manufacturing, clinical trials, clinical ops, who oversees the, you know, the partnership with those third parties. And we very much talk about partnerships. We don't have vendors. We, we don't have people that are, we're outsourcing. We have partners and we say to them, when we're setting up the partnerships and we're working out who to work with, you know, we need your hands, your heads and your hearts, not just your hands and your feet. Um, and, and we find that we get really good traction with that, where people see us as very serious people, see us as very experienced people who we're really trying to leverage, not just this is a way of, of, of going to an outsource model where we're trying to spend less money, but very much a, a whole business focus of, the, of this external relationship as a partner, which is mutually beneficial to Anthos and the other people. And from a quality perspective, you know, for example, the statistical group we use, it's exactly the same statistical group I used when I was at Novartis. Yeah. So, you know, the quality is as good as you, as you get anywhere, anywhere else. The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Okay. So wanna, that's, that's that model. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. I've, I want to ask some follow-up questions there, uh, perhaps so we can, we can address some, some, some potential skepticism, uh, especially in this, in the context of the day and age that, that we're in around, around outsourcing. Um, so let's, let's just stay there for a minute. Uh, 
so the skeptic would say, and when I say skeptic, I, I you know, I, I can point to any number of biopharma execs who are looking at long, long lead times with outsourced manufacturers who are looking for, you know, the, the, the competition for capacity, manufacturing capacity, who are looking at uh, long lead times for clinical trials and, and providers of clinical trial services for that matter. Uh, you mentioned speed. I mean, in, in your, you know, in, in your explanation there, you talked about, you know, you're, you're an agile company. The, the facilities exist, the capacity and knowledge exists to produce these things. Why, you know, why take the time to stop and build? Yet, uh, you know, like I said, I talk with any number of execs who are like, well, speed is why we chose to build because we don't want to wait for, um, wait for capacity or, or, or expertise or, or, as I said, clinical trial services. So talk, let's talk about that a little bit. How do you, what's your advice for, um, I guess, acknowledging and, and winning that battle for capacity with, with your partners? So, so I, th- I think the first starting point is always start with the end in mind. What is it you're trying to get to? And where do you think you want to be ready with those various decision points, right? Is that, is that the IND? Is that your phase one trials? Is that your phase three trials? Um, and think through that total timeline. Don't think in a sequential fashion alone. Mm-hmm. Um, because especially when we're dealing with advanced therapeutics, and I still count, this makes me chuckle now that sometimes people discount monoclonal antibodies as advanced therapeutics. What you're wanting to be doing is your confirmatory clinical trials with the same process that you did your initial trials. And what may appear to be very quick at the beginning um, may be very difficult to scale and difficult to reproduce later on in the process. So start with the end. The other thing is, once you've start with that end in mind and you're clear on the overall timeline in that reverse fashion, um, is start to see where do you see weaknesses in that process and what can you do to, to jumpstart that. And I'll, I'll give you a tangible example. Mm-hmm. We were recruiting our, our phase two studies um, you know, during COVID um, and we were starting to we were starting to hear about issues with non-human primates due to the amount of non-human primate studies that were done during COVID. We knew that we needed to run an EPPND study for our BLA in basically in 22 uh, in order to hit the BLA timelines we planned. Mm -hmm. So we contacted the the companies that could do that and we signed that contract uh, in February 21. So even though we, we knew we didn't need it for well over a year, mm-hmm. we signed that very early on on the simple, on the simple basis is that we could not that be rate limiting and signed it you know, with a partner that committed because we'd signed so early, we would get access to the, those non-human primates in that study you know, will run on time. Yeah. Um, so it, it is really thinking, work through the whole timeline, work back. And then say what makes the most sense for that whole process. Yeah, yeah. Anticipating those challenges and not just anticipating them, but taking action on them well in advance. Um, what what challenges uh, have you faced in this model, and how have you dealt with them? Perhaps unforeseen. Um, obviously, you know, you just brought up a great point. Uh, the the intellectual 
capacity of your team and its ability to anticipate and and um, not react but act <laughs> prior to the the problem is a key element of of, of the equation. Um, but, but what challenges have uh, arisen as a result of not as a, as a result of but in this in this model in the context of this this business model and how have you how have you reacted anything in particular you know maybe related to the COVID supply chain issues or yeah you know we saw um, and this this I think we we certainly saw in the you know with regards to COVID single use bioreactor supplies mm-hmm. got very tight. Um, and and had some issues, uh, so so I think this was one where we were reactive, and I and I've changed the way we do things. Um, before we had, you know, what we do now in that model, in the model we've built based on changes to the enterprise risk management process, you know, we we contract those supplies earlier. So rather than just contract the resins or things that people are used to contracting, mm-hmm. and considering the other things just true disposables. We 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 now contract for that whole process. Now was that because we're really great and really experienced? No, it's because we we unfortunately on that one we learned the hard way. Yeah. Some of some of these things in the right time um, where you need them may not be there, and so but you can correct that for the future. And so I'm a big believer in in lessons learned and taking that forward with you. And if those things have that possibility and they're you know, they're very low cost. You can still operate in that environment with greater certainty by changing your acquisition practice, which is which is what we've done moving forward. We yeah. can track for all the disposables, not just the things that traditionally would, would have done. Now, yeah. if we own that facility, what I can't tell you is, would we have done any better versus the third party? I'm I don't know that for a fact, Matt, but I'm somewhat skeptical because people said to me, well, maybe if you had built your own single-use bioreactor, you wouldn't have that issue. I think there's a bit of a difference negotiating with some of these suppliers as a small biotech versus with a bigger outsource CDMO has more leverage to to pull that in. Sure. It's an excellent uh, point. And, and, and so... You know, I, I hear it. We learn from it, uh, but but I, I wouldn't think that just because you did it yourself, you would have got it faster. Yeah, I, I don't know that one way or the other, but I do think there's a great deal of strength that when one of the world's largest manufacturers contacts those subpart suppliers, they've got a lot more leverage than I would have as an individual. For sure. Yeah, yeah. That's that's that's. Uh, I was going to ask you if there's a you know sort of a, a power play or mu- muscle play. Uh, trick that you can share <laughs> that you can share you know as it relates to securing those consumables um and, and that's a great point and i i can only imagine that it's that it's true so i want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about indications and candidates uh, and get an update there so you guys are working on biologic therapies for cardiovascular and metabolic diseases as i mentioned uh tell us what specifically what indications are you addressing and what are the patient needs for those indications look like yeah, well, thanks for the question. The, you know, the area that we're focused on with abilisumab, which is you know the product we signed from Novartis, mm-hmm. is a is a dual activity factor eleven uh, product. So it interferes in the in the clotting cascade with factor eleven, which is really fundamentally very interesting from uh, you know a more recent understanding of of what we need to do to uh, manage our clotting, if you will, on one hand, and then stop thrombosis on the other. 
So the reason we were really interested in this, Matt, is we believe by going down the factor 11 route, we can pharmacologically uncouple your normal hemostasis, your physiological hemostasis from your pathological thrombosis. Hmm. So what we believe with all the conventional agents or those current agents is, of course, they make you bleed because they're interfering with your normal hemostasis, your normal clotting. Factor 11 doesn't play a a major role in normal clotting. It only comes to into play uh, from from a thrombosis side. And so, protecting using factor eleven, we can protect you from the clot, and then not cause you uh, additional excessive bleeding from a pharmacological perspective. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the science in the area we're playing in. Where where are we focused currently? We're we're really focused in in two areas: cancer associated thrombosis. So a little known fact: people, uh, you know, unfortunately undergoing treatment for cancer, um, the second most likely cause of, of death is in fact a, a blood clot while they're undergoing that, that you know, treatment course. Yeah. Um, and so no one's got an indication there. All the drugs are used by, by guideline and they clearly have therapeutic benefit. Uh, but we think you know, a control program uh, demonstrating that we can help these patients is, is really, uh, really going to improve care in the cancer-associated space. The second area is in, in atrial fibrillation, where we fill with a profile of, of abilisumab, where we can protect people from a clot in that area while not increasing their bleed risk is, is really going to be a major benefit to patients and, and, and to physicians who currently are walking this tightrope of knowing the patients at risk from a clot, equally knowing that they're very much at risk of a bleed. And for individual patients, is is the sin of omission worse than the sin of commission? And we're hoping to change that equation uh, with abilisumab and make sure that they can protect people from the clot and not worry that they're causing them excessive bleeding. Yeah. Okay. I want to. Uh, you you mentioned standards of care, and I want to I want to kind of combine two questions here because I think they dovetail into one another. I, two questions that I had for you. One being, what are the shortfalls of the current standards of care? And then and then I wanted to ask you about your. Um, I think it was over the summer of 21, you uh, published some positive phase two efficacy research on that lead candidate uh, for post-operative venous thromboembolism. And those results struck me, and this is where it dovetails (laughs) into that question around uh, the the shortfalls of the current standards of care, because I'm I'm not going to get the number correctly, but was it 40, 40% uh, was you tell me if it was 40% improvement over current standard standard of care, it was a, it was a considerable. Uh, it was consider- luckily, luckily it was an 80% improvement over the standard of care. So I'm, yeah, I have that. I have that. And, and, and if, even if it still correct, sounded good, right. That's what I'm saying. Even if I had been correct, uh, it, it, that's, that's what, you know, it, it, it particularly struck me um, because you don't see, you don't see results like that in a phase two efficacy study very often. Uh, it's extremely promising. Um, so tell us a little bit, unpack some of that for us. Like, tell us about that clinical trial and 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 why perhaps you know without without getting too scientific, uh, those results were so positive uh, in 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 uh, comparison to the standard of care. Yeah. So let, let let's sort of take it in, in reverse order. Yeah. What are the challenges with the standard of care? The standard of care, which are the sort of DOAX and and warfarin, they all operate directly. In, in the common pathway. So the, the system, you know, the physiological system 
where the body's designed to to stop you bleeding is exactly where they work. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, the DOACs have been an improvement over warfarin. They clearly have le- you know less major bleeding than um, than warfarin in 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 these settings, but there is still a significant amount of bleeding that takes place, leading to this under treatment and and not utilizing not utilizing these products the way they should be. So that that really is the unmet need is can we protect people from from clotting without making them bleed where the physician's disillusioned, the patient's worried, um, people are not adherent, and then you then you run the risk of 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 a stroke or or other event. The what we wanted what we needed to do before we could move forward is there is a huge amount of literature, genetic, genetic, genetic epidemiology, and and animal studies that show that by interfering with factor 11 and reducing it, then you can reduce you can reduce clots. So in a genetic population who genetically have factor 11 deficiency, what you see is about an 80% reduction in that population for stroke and about a 50% reduction for myocardial infarction. So we know that it's beneficial. We know that those patients in you know that have that genetic abnormality don't don't bleed. Um, you know, outside of traumatic bleeding, obviously, but mm-hmm. don't have a, an inherent bleed risk. So can we reproduce that? Um, and the first study we did, we needed to do beyond the phase one safety studies was an efficacy study because clearly, yes, you don't want people to bleed, but you better be make sure that you can stop a clot, right? Right, Because that's the, the primary reason for treatment. And so that study is a, the, the sort of gold standard for assessing anticoagulants. So our product is a hemostasis sparing anticoagulant. It was the key study we could do, but we were really, really pleased with the results. Um, We'd powered the study for a 50% reduction. So we were even more bullish than your comment, Matt. We we, we thought we could reduce it at least 50%, uh, but you saw the data which appeared in the New England Journal and we got an 80% reduction. Uh, We were really pleased with that. The other factor that the key opinion leaders were really driving home to us was this was really great, um, really great data, but was also very promising was we got to that level of inhibition and reduction without, without seeing any increased bleeding. Mm-hmm. And so that it's not a study designed to prove ble- bleeding, but it is very supportive that we can get to maximal uh, reduction in factor 11, we can inhibit it essentially to 100%, um, really drive very strong efficacy uh, and, and not see any bleeding at, at this stage. Yeah. So we're, we're very, obviously, you know, we need to prove that in larger studies, Sure. but the, but the potential of the drug is very exciting based on that data. Yeah, for sure. What is, uh, what is a, a, an early success like that um, do as far as how it influences your go forward plan? Um, I mean, obviously, it's attractive to any number of stakeholders. Uh, but what, what, I guess, what, what does it mean to Anthos to to get those results and say, okay, like we're going to pound this stake even further into the ground, and then what the next steps might look like? Yeah, so so it's a great analogy, pounding the stick into the ground. I think we were always very confident about the science of this drug because of the all of the evidence from genetics and genetic epidemiology. What that gave us was the confidence to go even faster with our plans. So we completed enrollment of our um, 
phase two in atrial fibrillation just about a week ago. Um, we recruited nearly 1,300 patients in, in 10 months. We think that, un that underscores the unmet need in this area where mm -hmm. you can recruit that fast during a pandemic. Uh, but we've really accelerated what we're doing around uh, the phase three atrial fibrillation, which we plan to start in 2022. Okay. Excellent. And that, that's, we, you know, we think it's given us so much confidence. And when we go and meet with clinicians and say, we want you to recruit to this study, that level of efficacy um, really, we think will increase the confidence of physicians to enter into the phase three program, their patients. Yeah. Okay. Um, any other pipeline updates? So I know this is your lead candidate. Are there uh, further indications that you'll be exploring? Any additions to the pipeline moving forward that you can disclose, of course? I may be putting the cart in front of the horse. Well, they're the, they're the first two, you know, the first two indications we have. We've forecast an additional 15 indications beyond this. Oh, okay. Um, and, and there are obviously several clues that will come out from the ongoing trials as to what the right launch sequences beyond the initial two indications. Um, you know, one area that I'm really excited about from a clinical perspective and a need perspective is, you know, patients who have both a stroke risk, but also a coronary disease risk. And in today's world, how, you know, the clinicians faced with managing these people, I know they're at risk of stroke. They've got a high uh, CHAS-VAS score, but I equally know they've got coronary disease I need to use an antiplatelet agent. I'm not comfortable using a conventional anticoagulant. I think you know we're really excited about the possibility of being able to help clinicians make that decision if we can if we demonstrate the benefit where you can use a hemostasis sparing anticoagulant like abilisumab along with a platelet without increasing bleed risk. That would be a major a major benefit to patients and clinicians facing those those patient challenges. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a, there's a lot of conflict as it relates it, and 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 this speaks to the market opportunity. I I I'd, I'd like you to expand on that a little bit if you if you can. Um you know, my my wife recently had a hospital stay, minor, minor surgery. Uh, everything's fine. But even for a minor procedure, she she was in and out the same day. Um you know, I'm aware as a as a patient and a, as someone who's uh, you know been been charged with the care of patients. Uh, that this is a, a giant concern. Anytime anyone is hospitalized for anything beyond, you know, beyond, beyond cancer, um, blood clotting and, and, you know, cardiovascular health are, are major concerns during surgery, after surgery, post-operative care. It seems to me, uh, John, as though the, the market opportunity for your company and these multiple indications is, I mean, it, it, you, it's big enough that you, you, you know, you can't measure it. Am, am I right? I mean, there's, there's a ton of opportunity here. You, you can certainly measure anything, but it's, it's a huge <laughs> opportunity, right? Um, yeah. and, and let's, let's just take what we know about the market today. So the market today is the largest volume market in the world. It's the second largest market by value, um, but the largest volume. And yet, 30 to 40 percent of people are untreated yeah the other factor that we know is people are not adherent to their medications um because of the nuisance bleeding you you know everybody's met the person who said oh, i went on to a conventional anticoagulant i was bruising all the time and so i came off it um people are asked for low molecular weight heparin 
you know, that's a daily injection. Um, you know, that's that's not too much fun either. So, you know, the potential should the product live up to the profile that we all hope for it, um, you know, the, the opportunity is is massive. It's most importantly, it's massive in what it can do to change the standard of care for patients and increase, you know, physicians' confidence to prescribe. And obviously, with that kind of volume, then it then it's massive in terms of what it could do uh, from from a drug perspective. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, I know we're running short on time here, John. Uh, but I would ask you: uh, so, clinic, clinical trials, notwithstanding, we, we're aware that uh, moving forward with the clinical program is uh, is key, especially on the on the heels of of, of a good phase two efficacy outcome. Uh, but company-wise, you know, from a business perspective, what is the next big step for Anthos? Well, Anthos is laser-focused on making a success out of abolitumab. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the clinical trials are ongoing there. I think we are, you know, looking at how do we deliver the drug, you know, most effectively for patients, where we can get the very best adherence we can. So we're looking at a series of presentations around auto-injectors, and also, you know, looking forward, um, Bluetooth clip-ons, things that, how do, how do we change the nature of medicine overall? Hmm. Um, so, we're, so we're looking into those. Obviously, in today's world, we're all excited about clinical benefit, but we have to be aware of, you know, the payers in today's world. So making sure that we're working with the HTA, the health technology assessment agencies around the world, that we deliver a clinical package that will give them the confidence to reimburse and give patients access to this medicine is very much top of mind. And then looking to, to develop, you know, the increasing evidence outside of the clinical trial setting as to the impact that, you know, the disease has on people and bringing home the, the overall burden of the disease. So when we meet with clinicians and with payers, you know, we have that evidence to show as to, to what's happening and why it's happening. And by changing it, uh, using a drug like cabalistamab is better for the patient, society, and the physician. And so yeah. there's a lot of work to do in addition to clinical trials. Yeah. And this is where we talk about biotech agility and big pharma quality. You know, we're taking a thorough approach to patient access, uh, you know, as we would do at, at Novartis or, or Johnson & Johnson or other places I've worked. Yeah, 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 very good. Okay, uh, in the in the waning moments here, drawing on your experience uh, moving from big pharma to emerging bio um, and, and much of what, what we've discussed here, uh, what would be your best shot of parting advice for um, the leaders of, of new and emerging biopharma companies? Well, the key, the key fact to, to me is if you really enjoy what you do for a living in any big pharma company, um, you'll enjoy it even more in a smaller biopharmaceutical company. Hmm. If you enjoy, I'll use the analogy, you know, big pharma company is like running a race team. You've got lots of cars, you've got lots of moving parts, and there's a, there's a great deal to, to running a race team. Mm-hmm. When you come to a small biotech, you're the racer. The car and the team is you, and and that's even more thrilling, I think. So yeah. I think whatever you're doing, if you enjoy it, you'll get even more enjoyment from, a, from an emerging biotech company. Very nice. That's, that's good. That's good. Um, I appreciate that. 
I, uh, and I appreciate the time you've spent with us, John. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, hopefully, we'll get the, ch- the opportunity to do it again uh, sometime soon. We'll be paying close attention to the company and cheering you on. Well, Matt, I appreciate your interest in Anthos and, and the questions. They're very thought-provoking. There are many things that you've provoked me to think about more, more clearly and, and articulate those to you. And thanks very much for, for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, it's my pleasure. Yeah. And like I said, I could, I could come up with a lot more thought provoking questions if we had more time. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll schedule around too. Okay. Look forward to it, Matt. And I, and I wish your, your wife uh, good health and a quick recovery. I appreciate that. Thank you. So that's Anthos Therapeutics, John Glasspool. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the business of biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva. Check out Cytiva's Biotech Accelerator, built for the leaders of new and emerging biotech at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Check us out and sign up for my newsletter at bioprocessonline.com. And if you're enjoying the pod, please subscribe, slide all the way to the right and give us five stars. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.